Oh, hello. Again, another week has passed. I am still fogged with COVID brain. It's not fun. I'm going to do my best to do our chapters for this week, despite the COVID brain, because the show must go on. The show must always go on. I just hope that these are not long chapters. (laughs) Where do we last leave off? Lots of stuff was happening. Um, uh, Morton, Morton and Helen came to life. The, the two uh, cadavers that Ernie was working on before everything had started. I mean, so much stuff was going on. Scuzz, Scuzz was eaten. Um, Things are, things are looking bleak. We're, we're near the end of the book. We're on, page 128 and there are 176 pages so probably after this week we'll have one more week i would imagine and then we'll be done so let's just jump right into it chapter 16 chuck wished casey would relax a bit so he would have a chance of getting laid but she remained unapproachable every time there was a noise outside a peal of thunder the wailing of a siren or the screaming of a hungry corpse She shivered and huddled tighter into a cowering bundle, hugging her arms across her breasts. Chuck was scared, but not that scared. His horniness was overriding his scaredness. In the cemetery, he had sat by watching suicide ball legs and Casey going off to ball meat. And he hadn't gotten the, oh my God. And he hadn't gotten the least little share of the goodies. John Russo's words, not mine. He figured if he could just stay close to Casey now in this crisis with emotions generally running high and out of control, he might get a chance to score on her. He might get a chance to score on her. Oh, my Lord. And (laughs) that he would never have had under normal circumstances. Ooh, smooth one, Chuck. Smooth. They were in the warehouse office. He was sitting behind one of the steel desks and she was sitting behind the other. He had tried going over and putting his arm around her a few times, but each time she had stiffened and held her whole body rigid till he went away. What a shame. If they could agree to forget about the ghouls outside for a little while, it wasn't a half bad setting for romance. The warehouse office would have been pitch black except for the candles they lit at one at a time. Uh, conserving of course there was no electricity and the phone was dead because of the downed power lines they had drunk the half pot of cold coffee on the mr coffee machine and there was no way to make more chuck had tried so right so they do go over to unita while the others are at the resurrection home they are for all intents and purposes uh pretty safe in there i suppose one one would imagine He had used his flashlight to venture out to the men's room for hot water from the tap, but it hadn't been hot enough to make the coffee grinds dissolve, coffee grains dissolve. He wondered if maybe he should have cast his lot with meat, scuzz, and Tina when they had decided to try and make it to the funeral home, but he had let his cock do his thinking for him. When Casey had refused to move because she was too shook up to go out among the ghouls anymore, he had volunteered to stay and watch over her. If he had split, it might have made her split too, in preference to being the only one left behind. Maybe he would have been wiser to be more interested in getting away than in getting laid. But after all, there was no guarantee that the rest of the gang had made it. They might all be dead, their brains sucked out of their friggin' skulls. 
At least the warehouse was reasonably safe. The walls were corrugated steel and the tall, narrow windows were locked and barred. The tarry corpse down in the basement pounded and groaned from time to time, but so far it had been unable to break out. Chuck, Casey said in a low, trembling voice, do you think we're going to be rescued? He was glad she was asking him that kind of question, depending on him to be wise and strong and maybe start to fall for him a little bit. He might yet he might yet get in her pants in the orange candle glow with her long blonde hair and fear widening green eyes. She seemed especially desirable and vulnerable. Sure, he told her with a lot more confidence than he felt. It's just a matter of time. Someone will come and get us out of here. Someone, Casey stammered. I I hope it's the right kind of someone. She meant she was hoping it wouldn't be one of the ghouls. Probably the cops will come, said Chuck. You heard the sirens before. Squad cars must be out there prowling. They're bound to rescue us sooner or later. How will they know we're in here? Once they find out what's happening, they'll search for human survivors. In a pitch black warehouse, Casey said. Why would they look in here? Meat or Scuzz or Tina will tell them about us, Chuck said. I wish we could be sure, Casey said meekly and mournfully. What if they don't? I mean, she let her voice trail off, looking at Chuck with her scared, wide-eyed gaze. They made it, he said. They had to have made it. If they did, I hope they don't just forget about us, said Casey. They won't. They're our pals, Chuck said staunchly. Casey gave him a funny look, and he knew what it meant. No one in the gang really was close to him. In fact, they all treated him like a queeb most of the time. They knew he was mainly hanging around with them because he had the hots for Casey. She had been in she had been in his class in the past term, their junior year, but she hadn't given him a tumble. He wanted her so bad, and he had wheeled his way into her crowd. But they sensed he wasn't for real, not really into their punk rock. New wave kind of shit. He was... He was at heart a square middle-class kid with a heavy crush on a chick who was beautiful but wild. Casey's beauty and the wildness teased and tormented him. When she went off with meat, it blew his mind. He was appalled and jealous that she was an easy lay for a freaked-out guy like meat instead of for him. Casey, he asked her, if we get out of this alive, will you make it look... Will you make... Will it make you look... At anything a little differently she shot him a puzzled look you mean like becoming more religious or something grateful to god for sparing us well yeah i guess so said chuck who really hadn't been thinking along those lines i admit i've said a few p- prayers have you no i almost weakened but i didn't i don't think praying does any good if it did lots of people like little kids and can with cancer and stuff would just get better they pray to god but he doesn't help Sometimes he does, said Chuck. No, he doesn't. If some people are cured, that's just luck. If God was going to help one person, why wouldn't he help them at all? I mean, we're supposed to be equals in his eyes, right? Don't you believe in in God? Chuck asked disconcertedly. Boy, John Russo, you're really, really subverting us with this stuff, huh? Not like most people do. If there's a God, I don't think he's up there paying attention to us. He just made us like toys and wound us up and let us go. We're on our own, and he doesn't want to be bothered. That's why everything is always screwed up all the time. You're agnostic then, said Chuck. I guess so. 
You don't believe in sin? What do you mean? Like sex, for instance. Isn't it a sin for you to do it with whoever you want? No, it's not a sin, she said. It's not immoral or unethical unless I make a personal commitment to do it with only one particular person or even a group of particular persons and then go off and do it with other people. But so far you haven't made it, but so far you haven't made that kind of commitment. Uh Uh-huh. She peered at him in the candlelight, obviously wondering why he was on such a subject at a time like this, but she no longer looked quite so scared. Thinking about his questions and answering them had settled her down. He was incredibly horny. We know, John Russo, you told us. Hearing her talk so frankly about having sex with a whole group of people had fired him up worse than ever. Uh, Casey, he said, his throat dry. Uh Uh-huh. Since you don't think it's a sin to do it with whoever you want, how do you make up your mind who you want to do it with? By choosing? (laughs) Like like a free person is to do? Like, (laughs) Jesus Christ. She thought about it, furrowing her unblemished brow and tossing her long blonde hair back in a careless automatic way that got to him every time she did it. I don't know, she said. I never pick myself apart to find out why. It's just a certain chemistry happens, a certain person, a certain situation. I can feel when it's right, and then I go for it. He held his breath and took the plunge. How about now with me? Because if we don't get rescued, it might be our last chance to get our rocks off. I'll consider it, she told him. But zombies outside don't exactly put me in the mood. We we can push those heavy filing cabinets up against the, the office door, he suggested, anxious to throw her on the floor and do it to her. He was so hard up, he was even scared they might get rescued before he got his chance. I don't know, Casey hedged. I don't know if I can really get into it right now. I mean, it might be bad for you, you know, he said, In the London air raids during World War II, people made love like mad. It was an affirmation of life in the midst of destruction. The zombies could use some affirming. Maybe more than bombs, don't you think? It makes a weird kind of sense, she conceded. He got up from behind the desk and with the bulge in his pants, went over to kiss her. Yeah, so... In the novel, they do, yeah, he does, they do, they do have sex. In the movie, Chuck is just hard up for Casey. They really sort of don't really play into this, but Russo expands on it. I mean, they get their whole chapter devoted to it, as you can see. Chapter 17, I have a feeling this is going to be a long one. After they got the most vulnerable spots of the funeral home boarded up and barricaded, Bert, Ernie and Meat returned to the embalming room. There, Tina was watching over Frank and Freddie, both still slumped over side by side, looking very ill, like life-sized ragdolls that somebody had painted a horrid greenish-gray color. Morton and Helen Dowden were flat on their backs on the embalming tables. They were both tied up with coils of rope round around, round and around, round around. Try saying that 10 times fast. Round, around, and around their bodies. Both were all battered up from the fight in the foyer, but Morton had received the worst of it. His head was smashed and bruised, and his torso was nearly chopped in two where Ernie had previously stitched and harnessed it. One of Helen's hands was missing, and her mouth was bloody from eating Scuzz's brain, but she seemed almost content to just lie there and watch everything that was going on. Apparently, this was because her stomach was full, her weird appetite temporarily appeased, 
Her husband, who hadn't eaten anything since coming back to life, kept moaning and groaning in his raspy voice, trying to break the ropes that bound him to the embalming table. I'm hungry and I can't see, he complained from time to time. I glued your eyelids. I glued your eyelids to keep them shut when you were laid out in your coffin, Ernie explained. Can't you remove the glue? Morton begged. No, I haven't had anything to dissolve it with, said the mortician. Sorry, but I had no way of anticipating this sort of problem. This is actually that's actually a really funny little scene that would have worked really, really well in the movie. I could imagine O'Bannon uh, uh, running with that. I can see, rasped Helen with a certain smugness. Mm-hmm, said Ernie. I didn't glue. I didn't use glue on you. Just plastic eye caps. You must have clawed them out. Meat came over and stared with trepidation at the two corpses in the murky candlelight. Are you sure they're tied up securely? He asked Ernie. He still had his claw hammer in his hand just in case something happened. I don't see why not, said Ernie. They're not stronger than humans. Bert Wilson piped up nervously, coming up behind Meat, but no closer. Well, Ernie, I don't understand. What do you want with them? I mean, what are we doing? Let's get it over with. Put them in the incinerator. Are you going to burn us? Helen rasped. But she didn't sound the least bit scared. She even smiled ig- in ig- ne- ig- like ig- like enigma, enigma. I can't pronounce that word. Enigmatically. You know what I mean. I'm sorry. I suck at reading. We all know I suck at reading. Enigmatically. Doesn't that frighten you? Ernie asked. No, nothing can kill us. We just take different forms, said Helen. This, there is eternal life after all she chuckled hideously that is really frightening ernie asked does that frighten you she goes no nothing can kill us we just take different forms there is eternal life after all and she chuckled hideously as a result wow we'll see about we'll see about that bert snapped let's cremate him ernie i want to talk with them first the mortician replied with calm stubbornness Man, I don't dig your un- I don't dig you undertaker cats, Meat drawled. Ernie ignored the objections of the other two men and addressed Morton and Helen. Why do you eat people? he asked. Not people. Brains, Helen told him. Primarily we crave brains. We will eat human flesh to stave off our craving for brains, but plain flesh can't satisfy us completely why asked ernie brains contain medicine for our pain said helen morton groaned and thrashed miserably what about the pain pause perused ernie the pain of being dead helen told him it hurts to be dead i can feel myself rot christ Bert exploded. Far out, Meat drawled. Very interesting, said Ernie. What does eating brains have to do with it? It makes the pain go away, Helen informed him. Oh, God, I know, I know, rasped Morton. To Ernie and Bert, Meat said, Hey, come out in the hallway for a minute. I want to talk to you guys. Don't leave me alone with them, Tina gasped. They can't get up, said Ernie. They're securely tied down. Babe, you don't have to be scared of the ones on the embalming table. Oh, sorry. That was meat. 
Babe, you don't have to be scared of the ones on the embalming tables. Meat drawled. Your boyfriend and his chum is who you got to be scared of. Freddy is going to be okay, Tina s- snapped defiantly. Out in the hall, Meat said, listen, how do you kill those things? Y- y- you don't, said Ernie, shaking his head. What do you mean, said Bert? We already got rid of one by cremating it. The split dog, too. I'm not so sure about that, said Ernie. I'm not so sure the ashes or the smoke from... What we burned didn't go up the chimney and then get condensed back. I'm not so sure that the ashes or the smoke from what we burned didn't go up the chimney and then get condensed back down out of the rain and make those other ones come back to life somehow. Helen said they can't be destroyed, and I believe her. They're not alive. They're animated. With our own eyes, we've already seen how you could chop them up into pieces, and the pieces keep twitching and jumping around. Oh, fuck. Oh, Jesus, Meat moaned. Shit, said Bert. The only thing we can do is burn them. We got to take our chances with the ashes and the smoke. Personally, I'd rather, I mean, I'd sooner have those things all burnt out where there's nothing left coming after me. But what if we're just making more of them, said Ernie. A few more ain't going to make no difference, said Meat. Oh, that was Meat. Already there's hundreds of fuckers out there. How are we going to burn them all up, said Ernie. That's the $64,000 question. Or he says, that's the $64 question. We can at least deal with the ones we have in our midst, Bert said solemnly. So we get a different version. We don't get the uh, the the half corpse that we have in the movie, the iconic half corpse. Instead, we get um, Morton and Helen uh, giving us the lowdown. But yeah, like it is scary. Like the idea that that they just change form, they almost make it sound like the smoke is... Uh, sentient and there is something to that like earlier in the in in one of the previous chapters um the smoke uh seems to have its a mind of its own so there is something to that in in whatever russo is trying to add here um but the exchange is still scary uh, uh nonetheless Meantime, at the headquarters of the Louisville Police Precinct, including the warehouse district, the 4 to 12 watch commander was being relieved by the one who came in on duty at midnight. The new watch commander, Sergeant Harry McCarthy, I don't remember this part, was told that the call had just come in about the missing ambulances. Two teams of paramedics were dispatched to Colton Burner's funeral home, and neither team has reported in, either to the station or to the hospital. I'll take care of it, said Sergeant McCarthy. I'll send a squad car over there. It's a bad night with this awful storm. There's bound to be the more than the usual number of crazy incidents and fuck-ups. Well, the headaches are all yours now, the off-duty uh, watch commander said with a chuckle. I'm going home to my bitchy wife. Happy Fourth of July. Same to you, said McCarthy. Gonna stop for a shot and a beer to brace myself up before I look at my wife's fat, ugly puss, the off-duty watch commander said on his way out the door. The mention of booze set off a Pavilonian reaction in Sergeant McCarthy, a big beer-bellied cop with a red bulbous whiskey nose. He went to the coffee machine and poured himself a cup and then sat down behind his desk, unlocked it and slid open the bottom drawer. From under a police department flak jacket, he sneaked out a bottle of bourbon and poured a hefty dollop into his coffee. Sipping the black steaming coffee royale, he began to check the logbook. He grimaced sourly when he noted the huge number of entries. Long holidays were always hell. Gulping down some more coffee royale, he looked at his watch, 20 minutes to 12. It was his habit to show up early to relieve the old watch, and the other guys did the same for him. At about 7.30, his stint would be done, and he had no doubt that he was 
in for eight hours of insanity, knifings, shootings, drunken disorderlies, what have you. According to the logbook, the holding cells were already damn near full. It was the holiday spirit bringing out the worst in people. McCarthy wasn't in any hurry to radio a squad car to check out Colton Brenner's funeral home. The cops who had been on the fucked up city streets for almost eight hours would be coming in now dying to knock off for the fourth they didn't need one more gig to cap off a rotten dangerous day the last day had that he doesn't realize that yet so mccarthy decided to wait 20 minutes till some of the cops on the midnight shift came out of the locker room armed and uniformed and then he'd send a couple of fresh rested up guys to check out colton burners i I, I guess from like a narrative standpoint in this story, that makes sense. But that was just such an un we, this 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 beginning of this chapter is so unnecessary. All of that explanation just unnecessary. Didn't need it. Tina Vitali was in total anguish. Her arm around Freddie. Sorry, Tina Vitali was in total ang- anguish. Her arm around Freddie, trying to protect him. He sat slumped in his terrible sickness, moaning from time to time, but saying nothing to her as if he was far too ill to carry about her or anything else anymore. His boss, Frank, was the same way. Both men looked worse than ever. Their jaundiced skin, a deep, more repulsive shade of grayish green. Tina recalled that it was the same way Sunshine had looked after he died of an overdose. I mean, Russo, you've said this like three times now. But his body had smelled really bad and Freddie's didn't. She clung to this sign as if it meant hope. If Freddie didn't smell, he couldn't be dead. He couldn't be turned into one of those things. But Tina knew that Bert, Meat, and Ernie didn't see it the same way that she saw it. She feared what they might do to Freddie and Frank because of their rising panic. A while ago, she had watched them trundling the tied up bodies of Morton and Helen Dowden down the hall to the crematorium. To her, the Dowdens were talking thinking nearly human or at least once human beings she could never have brought herself to burn them alive but bert meat and ernie hadn't hesitated tears streaming down her face tina had clasped her hands tightly over her ears in an effort to blot out morton downton's awful raspy moans and groans as he was slammed into the crematorium oven for some reason his wife helen who had been cremated ahead of him had done nothing but chortle before she went up in smoke. When Meat, Bert, and Ernie strode back to the embalming room, they had a purposeful glint in their eyes that Tina didn't like as they stared at Frank and Freddie. She stooped and hugged her arms tighter around her boyfriend. Shit, said Meat. That frigging ghoul lady laughed at us when we were burning her up. She didn't care diddly squat. She knew she'd come back at us in some different form but I ain't sweating for now. At least we're rid of her ass for the time being. Damn right. Said, Damn right. Said Bert. We did the right thing. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Look, I went along with you guys, but I'm not all f- fired morally certain about it. I'm not so all fired morally. Look, I went along with you guys, but I'm not so all fired morally certain about it. Ernie cautioned. Um, I love this what they are insinuating at and had the movie gone this direction, it would have been very interesting. The idea that now Bert meet and Ernie are going to turn their sights to burn Frank and Freddie. Um, in a sense, the zombies really do outside. Once they're boarded out, they sort of completely take a backseat to the fact that 
the main conflict or drama could have been, and as they're insinuating in this book, the fact that they now have to deal with Freddie and Frank, who are potentially a liability. And that would have made for some very interesting choices in an alternate version of O'Bannon's story. Uh, and it's ultimately the story that O'Bannon didn't want to go. But if if O'Bannon got the chance to do what Romero did and did like his own like remake of his own film, I would have loved to have seen him explore this area. I ain't staying in here with them, Meat said, pointing his arm at, pointing his arm like a poker at Freddie and Frank. Damn right, we gotta do something about them, Bert told Ernie to his face. Tina squealed fearfully. Do do what? Freddie groaned, holding his stomach. So did Frank. Oh, it hurts, it hurts, they both rasped. I think they're getting hungry, said Meat. And we better get our asses in gear and dispose of them before they come to realize that what they're hungry for. Because it sure as shit ain't chitlins. Dispose of them, cried Tina. Dispose of them how? Well, said Meat with a meaningful glance towards the hallway that led to the crematorium. You're not going to burn them, Tina shrieked. Oh, yes, Bert began. But Ernie cut him off. Now, hold on. Let's not go off the deep end. I'm not for doing in anybody that's technically still human, technically still a human being that could be construed as premeditated homicide. Then let's throw them out. Meat suggested angrily. You bastard, said Tina. Why don't we throw you out? Because he's not the because he's not the dangerous one. Bert yelled at her. Ernie pleaded with everybody to calm down. Look, look, we don't have to throw anybody out. But maybe it would be a lot wiser, wiser if we say contained Frank and Freddie. What do you mean contain? Tina asked suspiciously and belligerently. Man, this chick is so damn loyal, Meat jeered. She don't even care to save her own ass. Quiet, said Ernie. I have an idea that should please all of us, even Frank and Freddie. We can lock them up in a room by themselves. So if they start acting up, they can't hurt anybody. And that way, if the cops do come, we can get them to a hospital right off the bat. Why don't you lock yourself up? Tina snapped. Look, don't be such a feather brain, Bert told her. We aren't proposing to do anything to any of them, for Christ's sake. Let's just lock them up in another damn room uh, for a while till we can figure out how to get help. Damn right, said Meat. I don't want one of them deciding to bite on my skull like they did to scuzz and suicide. Ernie, is there some room where we could put them in, where we could lock them up? Uh, yes, the chapel. That the chapel is what I had in mind. It has no windows. It would be perfect. He eyed Tina pleadingly. Will you go along with it? I really believe it's the best thing for all concerned. She nodded her head slowly and reluctantly. Then she said, I'm coming with you to make sure you don't stop off in the crematorium. We wouldn't sandbag you like that. I give you my word, said Ernie. Well, I'm coming with you anyway. Watch how you watch how you pick us up. Frank rasped timorously. Please be gentle, begged Freddy. Tina and Ernie got their shoulders under Freddy's arms and Bert and Meat did the same for Frank. But as soon as they tried to pick up the two chemically contaminated men, they both started screaming. No! Oh, God, it hurts. It hurts. Let's let's let them alone. I can't. Let's let them alone. I can't stand it, Tina yelled. It's either this or we burn them, Bert threatened, like moaning, groaning, injured football players being hustled off the field of action. Frank and Freddie were lugged and pulled up the stairs to the chapel. 
Tina was completely unnerved by the screaming pain of her boyfriend, by the screaming pain her boyfriend was obviously under. His body rubbing against hers felt stiff, arthritic, paralyzed. Every jolt and jingle brought forth an agonized wail. So it was great relief when they all finally got inside the chapel room, which was lit by glowing red novena candles. Huffing, Ernie said. Let's just lay them down here on the carpet over there. Frank and Freddie both screamed louder than ever as they were lowered onto the floor. Tina knelt over her boyfriend and cried, Oh, Freddie! Oh, Freddie! Taking what he felt was a hell of a chance. Bert dug into Frank's Unita uniform pocket and pulled out the van keys and then jumped back, jingling them triumphantly. Got us some whales now, he enthused. That's good, said Meat. Let's just leave them in here and hightail it. I'm not leaving Freddy, Tina snobbed, sobbed. You gotta be the dumb you gotta be the dumbest chick in the world, said Meat. If you stay in there, if you stay in there with them, we're locking the door, said Bert. Think what that'll mean if I can't leave him. We're supposed to get married, she whined miserably. Till death do us part, Meat scoffed. Please, Tina, be reasonable, Ernie begged. This is not an ordinary situation by any stretch of the imagination. I think you could be forgiven for not making yourself part of a necessary quarantine. I'm staying, she snapped with an absolute defiance. Okay, whatever you say, Ernie said, shaking his head sadly. He and Bert and Meat hurried out of the chapel, leaving Tina with Freddie and Frank. Just as Ernie closed and locked the chapel doors, Meat and Bert shouted from the foyer. The cops, the cops, they're coming to rescue us. They're pulling up right outside. Ernie came to peer through the glass of the double front doors, which had been broken and then boarded and barricaded. Meat and Bert were crouching and leaning into uncomfortable positions to see past aspects of the nailed up wood and piled up furniture that blocked the entrance. What if the ghouls, Meat blurted, giving voice to fear that all three men had, that the cops would barely get out of their squad car before they'd be swarmed under. Peering into the dark, hard-driving rain towards the headlights and flashing strobe of the police car, Ernie and Meat and Bert couldn't make out the presence of any corpses. Instead of giving them comfort, this filled them with ominous dread. They were all three thinking ambush. There was a thick, nailed-up plank flush against the place where a jagged hole had been smashed in the glass doors, and Ernie doubted that his voice would carry through it, but he pressed his face as close as he could and yelled, look out, they're out there, police, you're going to be attacked. Oh shit, they can't hear you, man, Meat moaned. We're screwed, we're screwed, Bert whined. Two big, strong-looking cops, one black and one white, had climbed out of their parole car and were moving in a slumped way in the driving rain. So far, they had not drawn their service revolvers because they could not see any need to. They had parked behind the second ambulance, the one parked right in front of the funeral home, and apparently hadn't noticed the one in the pitch blackness of the side lot. One of the ghouls must have turned off the ambulance lights. They were no longer flashing. Ernie tried yelling again. Help! Police! Be careful! Draw your guns! The cops didn't react. The pounding storm drowned out whatever muffled sound might have otherwise carried through the barricade. Getting soaked, the black cop and the white cop were both grazing, were both gazing at the ambulance, wondering why it was just sitting there so dark and useless. 
Ernie started hammering on the glass and the boards with his turned on flashlight. The racket got the cops attention, but they still didn't unholster their weapons. They started walking towards the porch of the funeral home. At the same time, shadowy figures edged out of the rainy darkness. Out of a frantic desperation, Ernie pulled his Luger from under his belt and fired two fast booming rounds into the ceiling, bringing down a shower of plaster. Now the cops scurried behind a couple of maple trees on either side of the walkway. Both drew their revolvers. They weren't sure where the shots had come from. They peered from behind the fat tree trunks. Uh, when they had spotted some of the ghouls advancing, they cried, Halt! But of course, the ghouls didn't pay any attention. A dozen, no, two dozen of them, kept coming out of the stormy blackness. Freeze! Or I'll, fall, I'll blow! Freeze! Or I'll blow your fucking brains out! The white cop yelled brains brains the corpse the corpses started chanting in their hideous death rattle voices we're screwed we're screwed we're screwed bert wilson lamented once again not us man the fuzz not us man the fuzz is in worse shape than we are meat said in a philosophical but horrified drawl the ghouls kept coming towards the cops hands outstretched screaming brains brains the cops both started firing at the same time, their service revolvers flashing and roaring. The white cop plugged one of the corpses right in the forehead, and it must have been a particularly rotted, decomposed corpse because its head went flying and landed with a thunk in the sopping earth. But the corpse didn't go down. It just reeled and staggered and kept kept on coming. Holy fuck, the white kid the white cop said and fired again and again. The black cop had his own mob of ghouls to deal with, coming at him from the opposite direction. He kept squeezing the trigger till his revolver gave him nothing but dead clicks. None of his slugs phased the ghouls. He threw the gun down and started to run back towards the cop car. The white cop was dragged down by a group of stinking, rotting corpses who ripped and clawed at his body, tearing off his uniform and biting into his flesh. One of the frenzied attackers chomped at his skull, splintering the bone in grotesquely powerful brain see in ugh. One of the frenzied attackers chomped at his skull, splintering the bone in grotesquely powerful brain-seeking jaws. The black cop yanked open the door of the squad car and got the shotgun from under the dash. He whirled and fired, blowing one of the ghouls apart, blasting flying chunks of gristle and bone and dead meat out of its abdomen so that its torso was cut in two. But the two halves of the thing continued to writhe and crawl in the muddy grass. He let off two more shotgun blasts before the ghouls dragged him out of the car. They swarmed on him in a mass ferociousness and the crawling half of the corpse and the crawling half of the, of a corpse chomped into his brain behind the barricade front behind the barricaded front doors of the funeral home. Bert meat and Ernie watched in futile terror as the cops were killed and devoured. Oh, God. Oh, God. Ernie moaned in sick revulsion as he turned away from the glass. This place is like a black hole, said Bert. This place is like a black hole. Everybody that comes in gets swallowed up. Meat's face shined with fear-induced sweat. So what are we going to do? He ranted. Just stand around here and kick our heels until the corpses find their way in? Man, there ain't no way we can stop those things. We got to get out of here. There's the van, Bert said. If we can make a break for it. 
No good, Ernie squelched. We're too damn surrounded. I'm scared to stay here anymore, said Bert. I'm almost willing to take my chances on an escape. You guys saw what happened to the cops. It pretty much shoots the shit out of any. It pretty much shoots the shit out of any hope of being rescued if we stick around here. There's a last ditch hiding place we could use if it comes down to it, Ernie said. Where? asked Bert curiously. He his curiosity tweaked. Yeah, how come you never told us about it, man? Meat said indignantly. Never thought about it, Ernie told them. It's the attic. There's a trap door and a pull downstairs. I guess I was figuring if we could open if we could open it, then the ghouls could too. But now I'm thinking that we could pretty easily fix it so we could bar the trap door once we were up there so nobody else could pull the folding stairs back down. Fuck, I ain't barricading myself in no attic, Meat said. I'm all for getting our act together and trying to cut the hell out of here. Show us where the attic is, just in case. Anyway, said Bert. Ernie led the way down the hall, past the main slumber parlor with the two empty caskets uh, that had lately contained the mortal remains of Morton and Helen Dowden. Shining his flashlight up at the trap door, uh, inset into the ceiling, he reached up for the pull cord and yanked on it so that the door swung down on its hinges, revealing the darkened loft, and pulled down the wooden steps that led up. Hmm, not bad, Bert admitted. Rumbling, r rumpling his hand through his red hair. I wonder if the ghouls are even smart enough to notice the pull cord. Shit, them things ain't such dummies, said Meat. Ernie folded the wooden scare stairs and scampered up into the attic. On his way, he shined his flashlight beam all around so that boxes of funeral parlor junk could be glimpsed. We could cut the pull cord off if we had to take refuge, he shouted down to Meat and Bert. And I can see right now it would be pretty easy to make the attic secure. All we'd have to do is leave a hammer and nails up here handy. The plywood flooring isn't nailed down, just laid across the beams. We could pull the stairs up behind us, then nail some of these thick ply nail some of this thick plywood right across the hatch. He came back down the stairs. What do you guys think? Fine, as a last resort but nothing I care to stake my life on, pronounced Bert. But it can't hurt to put a hammer and some spikes up there anyway. What the hell for, Meat bellowed. If we're splitting this place, we ain't gonna need no hammer and nails in that attic nowadays. You ain't chickening out on me, are you, Bert? No, I only mean to put a hammer and nails up there in case something happens before we get our escape plan together. I'm staying here, Ernie said coolly. I was out there once already, and I think I'd be stupid to take a chance on going out amongst those things again. I feel relatively secure here, maybe because it's my own place. More cops are bound to come. In fact, they're certain to hit this place in force once they get wise that their fellow officers were wiped out. The fuzz might not win. Mm, the fuzz might not win against these ghouls, said Meat. So far, it's Flesh Eaters 2 and Fuzz 0. Suddenly, Bert had a burst of inspiration and his face lit up with a glow of impending salvation. The freaking U.S. Army, he shouted in exhilaration. That's who can mop up those damn ghouls. That's why the phone number was on the drums. What phone number, asked Ernie. What drums, asked Meat. The freaking phone number, Bert said. The stale drum in the basement of the, of the Unita Medical Supply that contained the mummified corpses. Like the one that got suicide, said Meat. Yeah, it came out of one of those drums, see? Thanks to Frank and Freddy. There's instructions stenciled on every drum. Property of the U.S. Army and an 800 number to call in case of emergency. Well, what's the number? asked Ernie. 
Bert scratched his head and, and some of the enthusiasm went out of him. I can't remember, he mumbled. He murmured desolately. Shit, I must have run it a thousand times every time I went down to the basement. But now I can't even think about it for the life of me. In a frenzy, Meat grabbed Bert by the collar and yanked into his face. Think, think, you red-haired honky. Our fucking lives to our fucking lives are on the line here. I I, I can't come up with it, Bert stammered. It's one eight hundred something something something, and I don't know what. Easy, Meat. You can't scare it out of him, Ernie said. Meat turned Bert loose. It gives us a real reason to try and break out of here, Bert said. Of all the times, my memory to fail me. Not that it's ever been worth a shit. Mind if we have to get back to mind? We have to get back to the phone anyway. And the one out of here is and the one here is out of whack. If we could go to the warehouse, we'd kill two bears with one stone. Get the U.S. Army phone number off the drums and phone them from there. Two small problems, said me. One, the phone there is dead, too, because we tried we tried it before we cut out of there. And two, the monster that chomped on suicide's brain is still down in the basement. So we'd have to figure a way to clobber him before we can get to the drums. Let's go down to the embalming room and lay out a plan of action, Ernie suggested. I want to get a hammer and nails down here anyway to leave up in the attic. You still stay in here, man? Meat challenged him. It's a good military strategy, Ernie told him. I'd be unwise to squander all of our forces in a frontal assault. Um, if this was the movie and Ernie said that, you would think that he's referring to some of his um, background as being a Nazi. So we're, next week is chapter 18. Oh, my God. We have chapters. Let's see what we have left. There's 18, 19, 20. Uh, is there 21? If there's 21, we'll do two. Uh, so we have two more weeks after this week of of the story. Um. It really it, it presents a really cool alternate way to sort of view the story that's in the movie by reading the book. And it's just been really fun. And yeah, again, uh, seeing Helen and Morton just sardonically, you know, view their fate and be OK with it. Very scary. Very scary stuff. In any case, thank you again for joining me. And uh, again, apologies for my additional struggle this week with my uh, covid fog brain frog. COVID addled brain. Um, I'm almost 99% better, but it was a little bit more difficult reading, I guess, than normal. I don't know. I think every week is difficult reading, but uh, yeah. So until next time, peace and hair grease. We will see you.